0: famously coining the catchphrase, what are you talking about, Willis? BBC News.
1: This is Radio 4, where now it's time for the omnibus edition of our daily drama serial, the latest Commander Dal Glish mystery by P.D. James. The private patient is set largely in and around an exclusive plastic surgery clinic in Dorset, not far from an ancient stone circle, which has a grisly history of its own.
2: I never,
3: I never did. Why are you going to what? my
2: user, You see, never. where is she? I don't know. Where? I'm not. I'm not. Monsters, all of you! I curse you! I curse you all! Ah!
4: Ah! On November the twenty-first, the day of her forty-seventh birthday, and three weeks and two days before she was murdered, Rhoda Gradwin went to Harley Street to keep her first appointment with her plastic surgeon, George Chandler Pole.
5: About this trauma on your cheek, Miss Gradwin, when did it happen?
6: 34 years ago.
5: You've borne this scar on your face since you were 13. What caused it?
6: Is that something you need to know?
5: Not unless it was self-inflicted. I assume it wasn't.
4: It was not. A drunken bully of a father, a frightened and ineffective mother, and one night of exceptional violence had been permanently imprinted on the girl's face. No visit to the doctor followed her father's attack on her with a broken bottle. No truthful explanation ever given to anyone. Finding out what others kept hidden, probing into other people's secrets, became a lifelong obsession. As an investigative journalist, she became increasingly successful. And you've waited 34 years to do something
5: about this. Why now, Miss Gradwin?
6: Because I no longer have need of it.
5: I don't quite... Tell me, what are you expecting from this operation?
6: I'd like the scar to disappear, but I presume that's impossible. I suppose what I'm hoping for is a thin line, not this.
5: Well, no promises, mind, but we might do even better than that. Now, I have private beds at St Angela's, or if you'd prefer to be out of London, you could come to Chevrolet Manor, my clinic in Dorset.
4: I prefer to be out of London. Chevrolet was where Chandler Pole felt most at home. It was where he could indulge his two passions, his work and his house.
5: Make it brief, Marcus. It's been a long day. It's about Africa. I wanted you to know I've come to a decision.
7: I will be joining Mr Greenfield's team. I'd be grateful if you could release me in three months'
5: time. I take it you've told your sister. We've discussed it. Poor Candace. She'll have lost both her father and her brother in the space of a year. Has your father's death anything to do with this? Well, it's freed us to make our own
7: decisions about our lives, and she's all in favour. Oh, and there's one other thing we agree on. What's that? It's about a patient. Hmm? Rhoda Gradwin. I gather we'll be operating on her here at the manor shortly. What about her? We were wondering whether you really want to encourage investigative journalists here. Can't you just see the sort of thing they'll write? Rich women squander valuable operating time. Waste
5: of leading surgeons' talent. We don't need that sort of publicity. But Rhoda Gradwin needs what we can provide. If Candace doesn't like her, she need have nothing to do with her. The patients aren't her concern.
4: Chandler Pole hadn't intended to spend this Wednesday embroiled in arguments with either Marcus Westall or his sister. But now that a decision had been made, he thought it would be as well to see what Candace had in mind. He left the manor and in the fitful winter sunshine, walked up the lane to Stone Cottage. Approaching, he saw a dirty sports car parked next door outside Rose Cottage. So the Westalls' cousin, Robin Boyton, was visiting. Boyton tended to book the cottage at short notice. He couldn't help thinking how different Stone Cottage looked since Candace and her father had arrived some two and a half years before.
5: It's
8: about Marcus, isn't it?
5: He says you agree with this African decision.
8: It's time he left, George. I can see it's inconvenient for you, and we're both sorry about that, but you'll find someone else. And now that probate's been granted for Father's will, neither of us has to worry about money for the rest of our lives.
5: Will you stay on here for a time? I know Helena will be glad of help. She can't run the manor single-handed.
8: I'd be happy to stay on for a while. George, there's one other thing. You've got Rhoda Gradwin coming here soon for an operation. She's a dangerous woman.
5: Dangerous? In what way? To whom?
8: You must know something of her reputation. She's an investigative journalist, one of the worst kind. She sniffs out gossip like a pig with truffles. She makes it her job to discover things about other people which give them distress or pain or worse. She sells secrets for money. George, tell her there's been a double booking.
4: Robin Boyton was waiting, as always, at his favourite table by the door, which, as always, Rhoda had booked for them.
6: Darling.
9: Hello. Mm -hmm. Lovely to see you, Rhoda. How did you get on with the great George?
6: He seemed competent. I'll be having the operation at Chevrell Manor.
9: In that case, I think I'll visit you earlier in residence. You'll welcome a gossip.
6: No, Robin, I won't welcome a gossip. I chose the manor specifically to ensure that I'll be left alone.
9: Well, I do think that's rather grudging of you, considering I recommended the manor to you in the first place.
6: You stay there from time to time, don't you? Aren't you some kind of relation?
9: Not of Chandler Poe. His surgical assistant, Marcus Westler, is my cousin. There are two cottages in the grounds. Marcus lives in one of them with his sister Candice. She helps to run the manor. I'm their only living relative. You'd have thought that would mean something to them.
6: And it
4: doesn't?
9: Let me give you a little family history.
4: Rhoda was happy to settle back and listen. Anything she could learn about Chevrolet Manor would be useful. To arrive anywhere unbriefed was to put oneself at a disadvantage. Robin explained that his uncle Peregrine, who died nine months previously, had left his cousins Marcus and Candace about eight million pounds between them. Peregrine Westall had inherited the family fortune from his own father, who died only a few weeks before him.
6: Two deaths so close together, the death duties must have been horrendous.
9: Mm, But old grandfather Theodore had thought of that. He set up some form of insurance years before. Anyway, the money's all there. It passed down to my uncle Peregrine, and now my cousins will pocket the lot.
6: And you'd like a part of it. I deserve a
9: part of it. Grandfather Theodore Westall had two children, Peregrine and Sophie. Sophie was my mother. The trouble was, my grandfather never approved of Sophie's marriage. He cut the Boytons off from the family.
6: Robin, I've just thought of something. How long was it that Peregrine survived his father?
9: Um, 35 days.
6: Really? Well, your cousins must have had a pretty anxious time for a while. There's a clause in all wills saying you've got to survive 28 days after the death of the testator if you're to inherit.
7: I didn't know that.
6: Oh, yes. So I imagine they took good care to keep their father alive during the month after Theodore's death. Not to say nothing of those extra days. But just think, Robin. Was he really alive? Perhaps he died at some point and they popped him into a freezer and then produced him nice and fresh when required. There's a classic crime novel with that as the plot.
9: Candace was nursing her father at home. It could have happened.
4: Rhoda Gradwin went to the window in her bedroom at Cheverel Manor. Below stretched a lime avenue, which led to a low stone wall, and beyond it a small circle of stones, crude misshapen lumps around a central, taller stone. They must, she thought, be prehistoric. As she gazed, her ears caught the soft closing of her sitting-room door. Tea had arrived. She turned and saw, with a small shock of surprise, that a young woman had entered.
2: I brought you tea, madam.
4: She was a slight figure wearing a blue checked dress with a shapeless fawn cardigan over it who are you
2: my name's sharon sharon bateman i help in the kitchen i left the tray in the sitting room do you want it in here
6: well leave it to brew for a couple of minutes i've been looking at the stone circle out there
2: oh the Chevron stones madam they're quite famous miss cresset she runs the manor she says they're over three thousand years old hmm. but no one from the village goes to the stones after dark they're haunted. They're scared of seeing the ghost of Mary Kite walking and watching.
6: Who's Mary Kite?
2: She was tied to the Middle Stone and burnt there in 16-something or other. She was condemned as a witch. You can still see the brown patch where the fire was. What? They say that on the day of her death, her screams can be heard as far as the church. <sighs> she cursed the village as she was burnt. And afterwards, nearly all the children died. Oh, you surely
6: don't believe all that nonsense. So you don't think
2: the spirits of the dead can come back to visit us?
6: The dead don't return to visit us. Either as spirits, whatever that means, or in any other form.
2: Oh, but the dead are here. (gasps) Mary Kite isn't at rest. How could she be? She was only 20 when they burnt her. And the portraits in this ass. All those dead faces. I know they don't want me here.
6: (laughs) That's ridiculous. They're dead. They're beyond thought. And Mary Kite is dead. She can't come
4: back. Rhoda Gradwin slowly drifted back to consciousness. She became aware that she was lying on a bed in an unfamiliar room and that other people were with her, moving like pale shadows on silent feet. And then she remembered. She looked up and tried to form words from her impeded mouth. How did it go? Are you pleased?
5: It went very well. I hope that shortly you'll be pleased too. Now, you must rest here a while, and then sister will wheel you up to your room.
4: Closing her eyes and drifting into sleep, she thought of the peaceful night ahead, and of the morning, which she would never live to see. With the operation on Rhoda Gradwin satisfactorily completed, George Chandler-Pole was alone in his private sitting room. It was a solitude he often sought at the end of an operating day. he had enjoyed a light supper and was putting the first CD into the player when there was a knock on the door. He felt an irritation close to anger. Very few people disturbed him in his private sitting room. Before he could answer, the door opened and Flavia Holland, his theatre sister, came in. Still in uniform, she shut the door sharply behind her and leaned against it.
5: Miss Gradwin, is she all right?
3: Of course she's all right. If she weren't, would I be here? I've left Nurse Fraser in charge until I return. Anyway, I'm not here to discuss Rhoda Gradwin.
5: Okay, if it's not urgent, Flavia, can't it wait until tomorrow?
3: No, George, it can't. Not until tomorrow, nor the day after, nor the day after that. Not until any day when you condescend to find time to
5: listen. We'll talk outside. I suspect the discussion will be disagreeable. And I'd prefer a disagreeable conversation to take place outside this room. You'd um, better get a coat. I'll see you at the door.
3: We can't go on as we are. We have to make a decision. George. I'm asking you to marry me.
5: I'm afraid that isn't possible.
3: Of course it's possible. You're divorced, I'm single.
5: I meant our relationship has never been on that footing.
3: what footing exactly did you think it was on when we became lovers? And that was eight years ago, let me remind you. What footing was it on then? Uh,
5: Sexual attraction, respect, affection. I never said I loved you, Flavia. I never mentioned marriage. I wasn't looking for marriage. One failure is enough.
3: Always honest, always careful. You couldn't even give me fidelity, could you? Do you think I didn't know how many avaricious little gold diggers have tried to get their claws into you? But did you ever consider what I was feeling? For me, it's been eight years of commitment.
5: Flavia, I'm sorry. I had no idea you felt like this.
3: I'm not asking for pity. I'm not even asking for love. You haven't got it to give. I'm asking for justice I want marriage the status of being a wife the hope of children I'm 36 I don't want to work until I retire
5: it isn't too late you're very attractive and you're still young it's sensible to recognize when a stage of life has ended when it's time to move on
3: so you mean to throw me over
5: to move on
3: and you won't marry me
5: I will not Flavia accept it this is the end
3: don't think the people here don't know we're lovers Marcus and Candace Helena even the Bostocks in the kitchen they're all probably wondering when you're gonna chuck me well I'm damned if I'll stay here to endure their pity you leave in a few days for the Christmas break when you return I won't be here as you wish but George promise me one thing I've never asked for anything, have I? But I do ask this one thing. Come to me tonight. Come to my room. It's the first and last time I ask, I promise. Come late, about eleven. It can't end like this.
5: Of course I'll come.
4: Rhoda stirred into drowsy wakefulness. She lay for a few seconds, motionless in that brief confusion which attends the sudden awakening from sleep. Gazing at the window, she could see that the room was darker than the night outside. The wind was gusting strongly. She could hear its hiss in the chimney. Then, in a lull in the wind, she heard a sound so faint that only the stillness of the room could have made it audible. She sensed, rather than felt, A presence moving around the sitting room. Early morning tea. And now someone was closing the bedroom door. No one spoke. No light was turned on. Curiosity gave way to the first cold clutch of unease. Who are you? What are you doing? Who is it? There was no reply and now she knew with certainty that this was no friendly visitor, that she was in the presence of someone or something whose purpose was malignant. As she lay rigid, the pale figure, white-clad and masked, was at her bedside. Arms moved above her head in a ritual gesture, like an obscene parody of a benediction. She struggled to get out of bed, but found herself unable to move. The white-clothed figure looked down on her, She heard words, quietly spoken, but she could make no sense of them. She knew that this was death, and with the knowledge came an unsought peace, a letting go. And then the strong hand, skinless and inhuman, closed around her throat, forcing her head back against the pillows, and the apparition flung its weight forward. She wouldn't shut her eyes in the face of death, nor did she struggle the darkness of the room closed in on her and became the final darkness in which all feeling ceased. To meet a future father-in-law for the first time is a situation not free from misgivings. At half past ten on the Saturday of Rhoda Gradwin's death, Commander Adam Dalgleish, accompanied by his fiancée Emma Lavenham, was knocking on the door of 27 Calverton mansions, one of Marylebone's blocks of spacious Edwardian flats.
10: Professor Lavenham, warned that we'd come especially to inform him that we intended to marry, greeted us with kindness, if not exactly enthusiasm, and I was objected to a somewhat old-fashioned interrogation about my circumstances and prospects. I had just about convinced him that I was able to provide for Emma in the manner to which he was accustomed, when, somewhat to Professor Lavenham's irritation, we were interrupted by my mobile. It was Geoffrey Harkness, the Assistant Commissioner of the Met.
11: A case for the squad, Adam. The address is Cheverel Manor in Dorset, some ten miles west of Poole. It's a clinic-cum-nursing home run by a cosmetic surgeon, George Chandler Pole. One of his patients is dead, a Rhoda Gradwin. Strangled, apparently.
10: Why the squad, Geoffrey? Can't the local force take it on?
11: Number 10 has asked for you. They say this is a matter of particular sensitivity. Just the sort of case the squad was set up for. The Chief Constable down there is reasonably happy about it. He'll provide the sockos and the photographer. Chief Inspector Keith Whetstone from the local force will meet you at the scene. Do you want me to do
10: anything more this end? No, I'll contact Inspector Miskin and Sergeant Benton
4: Smith. I'll be in touch. For Detective Inspector Kate Miskin, her flat on the north bank of the Thames was a celebration of achievement. Paying the mortgage in the first few years had meant sacrifices, but she'd never lost that first excitement of walking through rooms full of light, of waking and falling asleep to the never-ending pulsation of the Thames. It
12: couldn't be more different from those claustrophobic rooms on the seventh floor of Ellison Fairweather buildings where I'd been brought up by my grandma. From the smell, the vandalised lifts, the overturned rubbish bins. What a childhood. But now I had my flat, a job I loved and was good at. And until six months ago, there'd been Piers Tarrant. We'd been so close to love, but I'd ended it. It was quite simple. I just couldn't tolerate having a partner who was unfaithful. For him, it'd been nothing, a passing incident. Look, Kate, it's unimportant. It didn't mean anything. She doesn't mean a thing to me. I know, that's what I object to. If that's how you want to live, that's your affair. I'm simply telling you that I don't want to have sex with a man who's sleeping with other women. And so he disappeared from my life.
4: Which is not to say that I didn't miss him. The call came at 10.50 on her dedicated mobile and Kate knew whose voice she would hear. She listened closely. The victim, a journalist, apparently strangled. The place, a clinic in Dorset. He gave the address. No explanation of why the squad were taking over, but apparently number 10 were involved. They were to travel by car, either hers or Benton's, and the team would aim to arrive together.
12: Yes, sir. I'll ring Benton now. I think we'll take his car, mine's due for a service.
10: Right. I need to call in at the yard, Kate. I'll meet you at Benton's place in Shepherd's Bush. I hope to be there by the time you arrive. At the front door of Chevrolet Manor, as we were pulling our murder bags, laptops and briefcases out of the cars, the door of the great porch opened and a man emerged. Closing the door behind him, he walked towards us.
13: Commander Doglish? Uh Uh-huh. Chief Inspector Keith Whetstone. You've made good time, sir. How do you do? Inspector Cape Miskin. Hello, sir. Sergeant Francis Benton Smith. You? Everything organised? The chief's arranged for a couple of Sokos to be here shortly, and the photographer's on his way. Incidentally, the yard said you could do with the DC, so I'm leaving you Malcolm Warren. Bit on the quiet side, but bright enough, and he knows when to keep his mouth shut. Quiet, reliable and discreet. I've no quarrel with that. Where is he now? He's outside the bedroom, guarding the body. Most of the household are waiting for you in the great hall. There's George Chandler Pole, who owns the place. His assistant, Marcus Westall, he's a surgeon. Then there's his sister, Candice Westall, she helps in the office. Flavia Holland, she's the chief nurse. Helena Cresset, who's a kind of general administrator. And Letitia Frencham, who does the accounts. An impressive feat of memory, Chief Inspector. Well, not really, sir. Most people hereabouts know who's at the manor. Has the pathologist arrived? About an hour ago, sir. She's also in the all. Well, you'd better all come this way.
10: As we approached the porch, the door opened, as if someone had been watching to time exactly our moment of arrival. There could be no doubt about the identity of the man who moved to one side as we entered.
5: George chandler The rest of us are in the Great Hall. As You come in.
10: We followed him through the porch and to a door to the left of the square entrance hall. chandler Pole opened it. The five people who were waiting on each side of the fire Their faces turned towards him and looked like a tableau. Introductions were quickly made.
5: Marcus Westall, Mm. Candace Westall, Flavia Holland, Helena Cresset, Letitia Frencham. And I understand you already know Dr Glenister.
0: Commander Dalgleish and I are old colleagues. (laughs) Well, shall we get started? The victims waited long enough. Mr Chandler-Pole, would you please lead the way?
10: I peeled the adhesive tape away from the door, and we entered the sitting room. Once inside, we saw that the door to the bedroom was closed. Chandler Pole pushed it gently open.
5: Uh, things are exactly as I found them. No one has entered this room since Sister and I left. Uh-huh.
10: We approached the body. Rhoda Gradwin was lying on her back. Her two arms raised awkwardly above her head as if in a gesture of theatrical surprise. The left side of her face was covered by a taped surgical dressing. The cause of death was evident.
0: She was strangled by a right-handed grip. The hand was probably in a smooth glove. See, there's bruising, but no nail scratches. I'll know more when I have her on the table. One thing, Mr Chandler-Pole, I think the lab will find it useful to have a list of all the drugs you keep in the dispensary here.
5: I'll get that for you. Thank you.
0: I'd
10: like a few minutes with you alone shortly, Mr Chandler-Pole. I need to get an idea of the layout here and details of the staff.
5: I'll be in the general office. That's inside the porch. I'll look out a plan of the manor for you. Thank you.
10: Can you estimate time of death yet, Dr Glenister?
0: Based on the hypostasis and the present development of rigor mortis, I'd say she died between 11 and 12.30 last night. Probably earlier rather than later. Thank you.
10: Benton, the photographer and the Sockers will be here shortly. You stay and cope with them. Kate, come with me. Sir. You heard Dr. Glenister. The murderer was probably wearing some sort of glove.
12: A smooth glove, sir.
10: Yes. I presume you have a stock of surgical gloves, Mr
5: Well, we have two types on the premises. The ones used for operations are stored in the operating suite, and that's kept locked. Disposable latex gloves are used by the nursing and household staff. They're kept in the housemaid's cupboard on the ground floor close to the kitchen. We don't monitor their use.
12: So all the staff at the manor would know there were latex gloves in the housemaid's cupboard. But no outsider would know, unless told. So, chances are, an insider must be involved in this murder, one way or another.
5: I have Rhoda Gradwin's file here. She gave her mother as next of kin. I've already provided Chief Inspector Whetstone with the name and address. Now, one other patient spent the night here, Mrs. Laura Skeffington. She was in the room next to Miss Gradwin, and she claims she saw lights in the grounds during the night. She's frightened and shocked. She wants to get away as soon as possible.
10: Then we'd better talk to her at
5: once. I'll lead the way. Mrs. Skeffington, this is... At
14: last! Commander Dalgleish, isn't it? I'm so glad you've come. Stuart said that you would. He told me not to worry. He'd get the best.
12: So that was why we were here. The Skeffingtons obviously had connections, and at the highest level... That's why the request came from number 10. This is Detective
10: Inspector Miskin. Hello. Now, Mrs. Skeffington, would you be kind enough to tell us exactly what has happened to you since you got here? But there's nothing to tell.
14: I arrived yesterday afternoon.
5: Mrs. Skeffington's operation was scheduled for this morning.
14: Mr. Marcus Westall, Sister Holland, and Miss Cresset met me in the hall, and I had a cup of tea with them. I knew I'd have to be up fairly early, so I went to my room and watched television until about 10 o'clock. Then I went to bed.
10: And what happened in the night?
14: Well, I slept for a while and then I woke, needing to go to the bathroom. What time was that? 20 to 12. I looked at my watch. It was then I heard the lift. Just the gentle clang of the door and the sort of purring as it went down. Before going back to bed, I went over to open the window a little wider. It was then I saw this light among the chevril stones. What kind of light? A small light moving among the stones. It flickered and then it disappeared. I felt, well, frightened. I don't believe in ghosts, of course, but I I remembered the witch who was burnt there and how the stones are said to be haunted. It was eerie. Horrible, really. Suddenly I wanted company, someone to talk to. I thought of the patient next door but when I opened the door into the corridor I realized I wasn't being... well considerate I suppose. After all it was nearly midnight. She was probably asleep. So I went back inside and rang for tea. Kimberly Bostock brought it up.
10: Did you tell her
5: about the light?
14: Yes I did. We spoke for a bit but she didn't stay long.
5: You didn't think of waking Sister Holland?
14: She'd probably have thought I was being foolish. And anyway, it wasn't as if I needed anything. And now, Commander Dalgleish, I want to go home. I've told you everything I know. Please, may I go now?
12: By the time we'd returned to the scene of the crime, Rhoda Gradwin's body had been removed. I found her mobile phone. Switching it on, I checked for calls and messages. Old text messages had been deleted, but there was a new one listed as from Robin It read, something very important has cropped up. I need to consult you. Please see me. Please don't shut me out. We'll
10: need to identify the sender,
12: Mm. but that can wait.
10: Now, Dr. Glenister said the killer was wearing gloves. He or she would want to get rid of them as quickly as possible. They could have been cut up and disposed of down one of the loos. Mm.
12: It's worth a look. We were lucky. In the bathroom of the suite at the far end of the corridor, we found a minute fragment of latex. Fragile as a piece of human skin caught under the rim of the lavatory bowl. A.D. carefully detached it with tweezers and placed it in an evidence bag. Then he closed it and he and I scribbled our initials over the seal.
10: We'll let the Sockos know about this find when they arrive.
12: And now I'd better phone Miss Gradwin's mother. Weston told me that he'd arranged for someone from the local force to visit her.
10: In that case, we'll get on with the group interviews. I'll see you and Benton in the library. Sir. The household was assembled and waiting with Kate and Benton when I entered the library with George chandler Pole. Marcus Westall had distanced himself from his sister, who was seated on a chair by the window. Sharon Bateman sat bolt upright a few feet away from her. Perhaps in medical solidarity, Westall had placed himself next to sister Flavia Holland. Helena Cresset, in one of the armchairs by the fire, sat upright, hands resting loosely on the chair arms. Beside her stood the elderly man who'd opened the gates for us, the only one on his feet. Dean and Kimberly Bostock, who ran the kitchen, were seated rigidly on the only sofa. As we entered, I saw Kimberly surreptitiously slide her hand into her husband's. Mrs. Frensham had taken a chair beside one of the windows and from time to time glanced out as if to reassure herself that there was a world, fresh and comfortingly normal. Outside, this air made sour by fear and tension.
5: Commander Dalgleish, would you like to take over? Thank you.
10: The idea of calling you all together is to get a group picture of exactly what happened to Rhoda Gradwin from the moment she arrived here until the discovery of her body. I shall, of course, need to speak to you separately, but I hope we'll be able to make some progress in the next half hour or so.
12: The silence was broken by Helena Cresset. She didn't say, for God's sake, let's get on with it, but the message was clear. The first person to see Miss Gradwin, she said, was Mogworthy here, who opened the gate for her. Sister Holland, Mr Westall and I were waiting for her in the Great Hall. Mogworthy confirmed that she'd arrived on time on Thursday evening, more or less. A.D. asked him if he'd gone into the manor with her, perhaps to carry a bag up to her room he was adamant that he hadn't entered the manor then or at any time afterwards. But he'd saved the best till last. When A.D. asked if he'd seen or heard anything unusual, he gave a smirk of sly satisfaction. Just before midnight, cycling home after his usual Friday fish and chips with a neighbour, he'd seen a car parked in the lay-by near the stones. This was news to them all, as no doubt Mogworthy had intended. I watched their faces as they glanced at each other. A moment of shared relief. A moment only. The next instant, the door was flung open and a man burst in with DC Warren behind him.
7: My God, Marcus. How could you, you bastard? Our cousin, Robin boyton He's staying in the guest cottage. Robin, this is Commander Dalgleish of New Scotland Yard and his You colleagues. cold-hearted bastard.
9: My friend, a dear close friend, is dead. Murdered. And you didn't even have the decency to tell me. <laughs> and here you all are, cozying up to the police, deciding to keep it all quiet. We mustn't upset Mr Pearl's valuable work, must we? And she's lying upstairs dead. Now, calm down, You should have Robin. told
10: me! I need to see her. I want to say goodbye. I'm afraid that isn't
7: possible, Mr Boyton. <laughs> Miss Gradwin's body has been taken to the mortuary. But I did try to tell you, Robin. I called at the cottage just before nine, but you were obviously still asleep. Anyway... Who knew you were such a close friend of Rhoda Gradwin? You once told us you knew her, but not that you were close.
10: Mr Boyton, at present, I'm interviewing only those people who were in the house from the time Miss Gradwin arrived until her body was discovered. As a friend of hers, what you have to tell us will be helpful, but not now. I must ask you to leave. Fine. As for you, Chancellor
9: Pole, nothing to say? She came here to have that scar removed to make a new life for herself. She trusted you, you murdering bastard, and you killed her.
10: Shall we get on? I said. And for the next twenty minutes, the recital of events on the previous day proceeded smoothly. Helena Cresset, who was in charge of running the manor, had welcomed Rhoda Gradwyn on the Thursday evening and taken her directly to her room. Yesterday, Friday, Miss Cresset had worked in the office with her assistant Candace Westall till seven, and had then joined Sister Holland and Letitia Frencham for dinner. Marcus Westall, she'd been told, was in London, staying the night with a consultant he was hoping to work with in Africa. This morning, Saturday, Miss Cresset was already showered and dressed when Chandler Pole arrived to tell her that Rhoda Gradwin was dead. Letitia Frencham, who ran the manor's financial affairs, ...confirmed Helena Cresset's account of their evening together. Miss Westall?
8: Yes, it's just as Helena says. I was working in the office with her till dinner time. When we'd eaten, I went back to the office for a few minutes to tidy up... ...and I left the manor shortly after 10 to go back home to Stone Cottage. Go on. As I left, Mr Chandler-Pole was coming down the stairs and we said good night. This morning he rang to say Miss Gradwin had been found dead. Marcus and I came over at once.
7: So you'd come back from London, Mr. Westall? Well, it seemed silly staying on. Matthew Greenfield and I finished dinner quite early, and then we chatted for a bit, and it was still only about 10 o'clock, so I decided to drive back home. I arrived around 12.30. Sister
3: Holland. Miss Gradwin was taken to the operating theatre around mid-morning. The operation went very smoothly. As soon as it was over, the anaesthetist and the ancillary staff left the manor. She spent a few hours in recovery and was wheeled back to her room at 4.30 yesterday afternoon. She slept till about 7.30 and then she asked for a light meal. My room is at the end of the corridor and I looked in every hour to check on her until I went to bed myself at around midnight. My last visit was at 11. Miss Gradwin was asleep.
10: Mr Chandler-Pole's account agreed with hers. The operation had gone well and he'd felt confident of an excellent result. He'd visited his patient last evening at about 10 o'clock. He'd been coming downstairs when he'd seen Candace Westall leaving the manor.
12: Throughout the proceedings, Sharon Bateman had been sitting very still with a look on her face which could only be described as sulky. A.D. glanced at me and I knew he wanted me to tackle her. What about you, Sharon?
2: What did you do yesterday evening? Me, I helped Dean and Kim in the kitchen till nine-ish. Then I went to my room and watched TV. What did you see? Can't remember. It's all rubbish anyway, innit? So, when did you hear about Miss Gradwin? This morning. Sister Holland came and woke me up and told me. Then she said to get down to the
10: kitchen
12: as soon as possible to help out.
10: And you. Mr and Mrs Bostock, isn't it?
12: Dean and Kimberly Bostock sat very close together, and as Kimberley began, I saw him place his hand over hers. She started by saying how she'd been woken just before midnight last night by a phone call from Mrs Skeffington, who'd asked for a cup of tea. Her husband had helped her carry up the tray. He never went into the patient's room, so he'd waited outside. Sister Holland broke in. Your instructions are to call me if patients ask for anything in the night. Why didn't you? Kimberly looked uncomfortable. I'm sorry, sister. I I did ask if she wanted to see you or Mr Chandler Pole. She said no, and I didn't want to wake you unnecessarily. So far, there have been no surprises. Now, A.D. asked whether Dean or Kimberly Bostock had seen anything unusual while they were up. Dean said, There's one thing, sir. When we got back to the ground floor, I saw that the door to the garden wasn't bolted. I knew that Mr Chandler-Pole normally bolts that door at 11, but sometimes it's a bit later if he goes out for a walk in the garden. I thought if I bolted it, he might be out there and not able to get back in. And you noticed this on your return, said A.D. Not when you were helping your wife carry up the tea. Just on our return, he said.
5: Mr. Pole, did you bolt that door at 11 last night? I did. And I found it bolted at 6.30 this morning. Did anyone
10: here unbolt it for any purpose? You can all see the importance of this. No. No No one? Mm. Well? Did anyone notice that the door was either bolted or unbolted after 11? No. Very well. Then that will be enough for now. I'll be seeing you all separately, either here or in the incident room at the old police cottage.
5: Commander Douglas, I'd like a quick word with you, if you can spare the time. The office, perhaps? You too, Kate. Sir. There's something I ought to say. You saw how embarrassed Kimberly was when asked why she hadn't woken Flavia Holland. I think it's likely she tried. The door to the suite wasn't locked, and if she or Dean partly opened it, they would have heard voices.
10: Whose voices?
5: Mine and Flavia's. I was with her at midnight. I see. The Bostocks may have felt awkward about telling you this, particularly with the others present.
10: I'll confirm that with the Bostocks later. How long were you together?
5: Until about one o'clock. There were things we needed to discuss. Some professional, some personal.
10: I got Kate to dig out the name of Rhoda Gradwin's solicitor, then phoned to ask him to meet us at Miss Gradwin's house in Sanctuary Court the following
4: morning. I told him to bring along a copy of her will. By 9.30 that Saturday night, the personal interviews were all completed, and Kimberly Bostock had been brought to admit that she had indeed overheard Mr Chandler Pole arguing with Sister Holland in her room the previous night.
10: Our problem is this. We have a group of seven people in the manor, any of whom could have killed Rhoda Gradwick. All knew where she was sleeping, here. And all knew that the suites beyond, here, were unoccupied and provided a possible hiding place. Mm. They all knew where the latex gloves were kept, and all could have obtained keys to the west door. Suspects. If Marcus Westall didn't return to Stone Cottage till 12.30, he's probably in the clear. But he hasn't been able to provide a witness. He could have got
12: back earlier. Then there's Robin Boynton, sir. Hmm. It's doubtful he knew where Rhoda Gradwin was sleeping, but he's the only one who knew her personally. And he admits that he booked into Rose Cottage because she was here.
10: If neither Chandler Pole nor Bostock was lying, and I don't think Bostock was, Mm. then someone in the house unbolted that door after 11 o'clock either to leave the manor or to let someone in. Mm,
12: What about Helena Cresset? Her father once owned the manor. He was forced to sell after the Lloyds' crash and Chandler Pole snapped it up. Mm. Rhoda Gradwin wrote some pretty vicious things about Cresset at the time, and he died not long afterwards. Perhaps Cressit's daughter bore a grudge and seized her opportunity.
10: Or perhaps Rhoda Gradwin wasn't the sole victim. Does someone bear a grudge against Chandler Poe? Did the murderer want to destroy the clinic to ruin Chandler Poe?
4: The following morning, Sunday, Doug and Kate left Stoke Chevrolet before six o'clock. They arrived in London before nine, stopped off briefly at the yard and then drove in silence through the almost empty streets.
12: The narrow cobbled entrance under a stone arch would have been easy to miss. Number eight was on the eastern side of the paved courtyard. The dark green door had been fitted with two security locks, but we found no difficulty in selecting the right keys from Rhoda Gradwin's bunch and the door opened easily.
10: Only here did I begin to feel that I was in mental touch with Rhoda Gradwin. It was in this room that she had lived, worked, rested, watched television, listened to music, needing no one and nothing that wasn't within these four walls. Her mahogany desk was to the left of an elegantly carved bookcase. Kate and I seated ourselves at it side by side. On the wall above us ran a shelf of box files, each neatly labelled, containing copies of all her press and magazine articles. You start at that end, Caton, right. and I'll work my way towards you. We settled down to work. For almost an hour, neither of us spoke.
12: This is interesting, sir.
10: Something about Chevrolet Manor?
12: No. An article Rhoda Gradwin wrote back in 2002. Seems to have attracted an awful amount of attention. This, this is the article. Hmm? And just look at the press cuttings that resulted. Show me.
10: The article was
12: intelligent,
10: well-written and meticulously researched. It dealt with cases of plagiarism, examples of writers copying other writers' work, sometimes lifting large chunks and passing it off as their own. Some of her cases were from the distant past, others more recent. The main contemporary case she covered was undoubtedly one of blatant plagiarism. Gradwin claimed that she had herself discovered it by chance. A young female novelist still at university, Annabel Skelton, had produced a first novel. It had been widely praised and shortlisted for a major literary prize. In the article, Gradwin showed beyond doubt that phrases, paragraphs of dialogue and powerful descriptive passages had been taken word for word from a work of fiction published in 1927 by a long-forgotten woman writer. The result of the furore that followed Rhoda Gradwin's article had been tragedy. Three days after the article appeared, the girl had killed herself. This picture, taken at Annabel Skelton's graveside. Have a look.
6: Uh,
10: Yes, sir? What of it? That woman. Third from the left. Recognise her?
12: Oh, Just a second, I I can't quite... Uh,
10: Here, use this.
12: Oh my god, sir, you're right. It's Candace Westall. Benton,
10: what have you got, Sergeant?
15: We've traced the car, sir. The one Mogworthy spotted on Friday night.
10: Quick work, Sergeant. Kate, you'd better hear this. I'll put it on speakerphone. Thanks, sir. And the car owner?
15: A bit surprising. Clergyman, the Reverend Michael Curtis, lives in Droughton Cross, the vicarage of St John's Church. Mm-hmm.
10: Full marks, Benton. Anything else? The
15: sockos have been combing in the area, sir, and they came up with a plastic bag that was hidden behind one of the chevroles stones. Huh? Uh, inside was a bundle of old postcards, or rather half-cards. The address side is missing. They seem to have been written to a child, all sent in 1993.
10: Have you asked anyone who they might belong to? Well,
15: oh, yes, sir. Well, Sharon Bateman seemed the most likely, so I got her along to the old police cottage. Well, she said at once they were hers, said they'd been sent to her by her father after he'd left home, and she said they were the most precious things she had, and she'd buried them near the stones when she first came to the manor because she reckoned they'd be safe
10: there. <laughs> An eventful day, Sergeant. Well done. Oh, that'll be Mr. McElfield. I'll let him in. Can you give Kate the address and postcode of that vicarage? We'll make our way there as soon as we've finished here. Yes, sir. Rhoda Gradwin's solicitor was tall, fair-haired and in his early forties. He refused to sit, but used the chair to hold his briefcase, which he opened. He pulled out Rhoda Gradwin's will. Her mother was the main beneficiary. The amount will probably surprise her, he said. I asked about other legacies. £20,000 goes to a Robin Boyton, he said. I don't know his relationship with the deceased. And with that, clearly a little annoyed at having his Sunday disturbed, he hurried away to host a family lunch. Kate and I turned back to our examination of Rhoda Gradwin's study. One drawer in her desk was locked, and I found the key on the bunch we'd taken from her handbag. I pulled the drawer open. Inside, there was a beige manila folder. The pockets stuffed with
4: papers. Kate pulled in a chair beside me. The papers were almost entirely press cuttings. At the top was an article from a Sunday newspaper dated February 1995. The headline was stark, Killed because she was too pretty. Underneath was a half-page photograph of a little girl in school uniform. Lucy Beale, aged nine, ran the caption. They stared at the story immediately beneath. In the Crown Court on Friday, Shirley Beale, 12, was found guilty of the murder of her nine-year-old sister, Lucy, because she was too pretty. She strangled Lucy with her school tie and then bashed in the face she hated until it was unrecognisable. Beale will be sent to a secure children's unit until she is 17, when she will be transferred to a young offender's institution. I turned over the cutting. Beneath it, clipped to a plain
10: sheet of paper, was a photograph. An older girl in the same school uniform. I pushed it across to Kate. It was a face we both knew. Sharon Bateman? I wonder how Gradwin managed to make the connection. It's odd the press were even able to publish the names. Reporting restrictions must have been lifted for some reason. Death had occurred at about 3.30 on a Saturday afternoon when the grandmother had gone to a local hall to play bingo. It was not unusual for the children to be left alone. The murder had been discovered when she returned home at 6 o'clock. Lucy's body was on the floor of the kitchen. Shirley was upstairs, asleep in bed. She'd made no attempt to wash her sister's blood from her hands and arms. The weapon, used to batter Lucy's face to a pulp, was an old flat iron which was used as a doorstop. When asked, Shirley at once admitted killing her sister. She showed no emotion. I need to have Sharon watched. Would you continue looking through these files? I'll do my phoning from downstairs.
16: Mr. Boyton. Why are you here at Chevrolet Manor?
9: Because Miss Gradwin asked me to come.
16: But that isn't quite accurate, is it, Mr Boyton? Mr Chandler-Pole was quite clear that Miss Gradwin had said she wanted no visitors. She may
9: have changed her mind. Or perhaps she didn't want anyone to see her before the bandages were removed. I don't know. I only know she
16: asked me to come. But you sent her a text. We found it on her mobile. What did you say? Something very important has cropped up i need to consult with you please see me please don't shut me out what was this important matter mr boyton it it
9: wasn't really important i tried to make it sound as if it was it was about money i run an advisory company with my partner we teach the socially insecure how to smarten up their act it's a real market opportunity and do the clients pay But we were running the show from Jeremy's house, and the neighbours were getting a bit sniffy. We needed another base, and a suitable property had come on the market. It would have been a really good investment for Rhoda, and I hoped she'd help. With the scar gone and a new life before her, she might have been interested.
16: And your partner, Jeremy... Coxon. Mr Coxon can confirm this?
9: Yes, he could, but I don't see why you should ask him. I didn't tell him I was going to approach Rhoda.
16: None of this is your business. We're investigating a murder, Mr. Boyton. Everything is our business.
12: AD spoke little on the journey north. This didn't bother me at all. Journeying with him in companionable silence has always been a special pleasure. Though, I thought, Riley, Piers and I could never stop talking to each other. The sat-nav eventually brought us to St John's Church. A huge grimed Victorian building with a dominant spire on the corner of the street we were seeking. Number two was the largest house with a garage to the left and a small front lawn. The Reverend Michael Curtis was wearing a cassock with what
10: looked like an old college scarf around his neck. His kindly eyes looked a little puzzled but completely unworried. I said I want to ask you about your car. It was seen parked late on Friday night close to the scene of a serious crime I'm hoping that whoever was driving might have seen something that would help our inquiries. Were you in Dorset on Friday night? Dorset? No, I was here with the parochial church council. I'd lent the car to a friend. He's the head of our local comprehensive, Droughton Cross, Stephen Collinsby. You might catch him now at the school. He usually goes in on Sunday afternoons to prepare for the week ahead.
12: A few minutes later, we arrived at a Victorian building of patterned brick, standing back in a large asphalt playground surrounded by tall railings. The front door was open to our rings so quickly that I suspected the Reverend Curtis had phoned his friend. Stephen Collinsby, almost as tall as A.D., was wearing a pair of old trousers and a jumper with patches of leather on the elbows. He led us through the sparsely furnished entrance hall and down the terrazzo-floored corridor, ...and stood aside to let us enter a room that was a mixture of conference room, study and sitting room. He poured out two chairs at the table.
17: Shall we sit here? Thank you. Thank you.
10: We're making inquiries into the suspicious death of a woman in Stoke Chevrolet in Dorset. A Ford Focus with a number plate 341 UDG was seen parked close to the house around 11.30 on the night she died, last Friday. We're told you borrowed the car on that date. Were you driving, and were you there? Yes, I was there.
17: Under what circumstances, Mr. Collinsby? I want to make a statement. I want to explain everything to you. I know it will all have to be official (laughs) later, but I want to tell you now in my own words. Perhaps that would be best. Well. Well, I gained a place at London University for a one-year teacher training course. I needed somewhere to live. A friend of mine had rented a room out in Essex. When visiting him, I saw an ad in a shop window offering a room suitable for a student. So I rang and went to the house. It was occupied by a docker, Stanley Beale, his wife and their two daughters, Shirley, who was 11, and her younger sister Lucy, aged 8.
10: You rented the room, I take it?
17: I did. But the atmosphere in that house was awful. They had their maternal grandmother living with them and the husband and wife were on shouting terms. To cut a long story short, within a week of my arrival, after a quarrel of house-shaking ferocity, Beale walked out. I could have done the same, but what kept me there was the younger daughter, Lucy.
12: Lucy, aged eight.
17: How can I describe her to you? She was an enchanting child. Graceful, gentle, with a fine intelligence. Sometimes when I was studying in my room, Lucy would join me and read while I was working. Then we would talk. Some weekends I'd ask her mother if I could take her up to London to a museum or gallery. Her mother was glad to have her out of the way, particularly when she was bringing her men back home. Did you? I I know what you're going to ask, and no, this was not a sexual relationship, not in any sense. It was love, pure and simple. (laughs) Who's going to believe me? Shirley also lived in the house, a difficult, morose child. I should have realised that she was unhappy. Once when I was taking Lucy to see Westminster Abbey, I did ask if she'd like to come, but she refused.
10: What happened next?
17: After I qualified, I decided to take a year off and travel. At first, I sent postcards to Lucy, sometimes two a week.
12: It's probable Lucy never received them.
17: Hmm?
12: We think they were intercepted by Shirley. They've been found, cut in half, and buried beside one of the chevron stones.
17: My god. I learned of Lucy's murder when I was in Sri Lanka. I was sick with the horror of it. And of course, I grieved for the child I loved. But I now had a wife and child of my own, so I never told anyone of my connection to the family. After all, I felt absolutely no responsibility for her death. I had none. So tell us, when exactly did Shirley
10: Beale get in touch with you?
18: The Private Patient by P.D. James, Dalgleish was played by Richard Derrington, Kate Miskin by Deborah McAndrew, Chandler Pohl by Jonathan Keeble, Rhoda Gradwin by Christine Kavanagh, Marcus Westall by Adrian Grove, and Candice Westall by Alison Pettit. Robin Boyton was played by Bertie Carvel, Sharon Bateman by Charlotte Worthing, Flavia Holland by Venita Rishi, Doctor Glenister by Charlotte Westorham, Collinsby by Andy Hockley, Mrs. Skeffington by Kate Leyden, Benton by John Deep Moore, Weston by Mark Carey, and Harkness by Robert Lister. The narrator was Carolyn Pickles. It was dramatised by Neville Teller and directed in Birmingham by Peter Leslie Ward. The Private Patient continues in Woman's Hour on Monday, with an omnibus edition next Friday evening. Well, The World Tonight is next, with Robin Lustig in New York and Roger Hearing in London. Before that, we'll have a quick look at tomorrow's weather forecast. It'll be wet and breezy for much of England, Wales and Northern Ireland, but the damp weather will clear western parts around midday to give brighter intervals and scattered showers. The rain will continue to move eastwards turning more showery as it goes before finally clearing in the evening. It'll be a largely cloudy and showery day for Scotland with the showers merging into longer spells of rain across the northwest. Looking ahead to Sunday and Monday it'll be drier and brighter in most parts although showers will affect northeastern Scotland. On FM, on longwave, on digital and online. This is BBC Radio 4.
6: were last seen in the Cole Street area of Scunthorpe last night. A French government minister has been fined for making racist remarks about a young party activist of Algerian origin. The interior minister, Brice Ortefer, said, we always need one. It's when there are lots of them that there are problems.
16: BBC News.
5: And now the omnibus edition of The Private Patient by P.D. James. Following the murder of Rhoda Gradwin at an exclusive clinic, Dalgleish has tracked down the driver of a car spotted near the crime scene. Stephen Collinsby has a connection to one of the clinic's staff, Sharon Bateman, formerly known as Shirley Beale.
17: When exactly did Shirley Beale get in touch with you? Last week, the 12th, uh, Wednesday. That's when I received a letter from her. She'd seen a TV programme I'd appeared on, something about secondary education, and she'd recognised me. She noted down the name of this school.
2: Darling Stephen, you haven't forgotten me, have you? I haven't forgotten you. I'd never do that. I still love you as much as ever. And I need to see you, Stephen. We must meet. I'm working now down in Dorset in a big ass. It's called Chevrolet Manor. And there's a lovely big parking space just outside the gates by the stone circle. That's where we'll meet at midnight on Friday. You will come, won't you, Stephen? Because someone I know really wants to tell the world all about us. About you and me and Lucy and how you threw me aside. And I really don't want to let them do that.
17: The letter horrified me. I couldn't imagine what she meant by still loving me. She'd never loved me or shown the slightest sign of affection for me, nor I for her. I didn't know what to do. I should probably have told my wife ...or even inform the police. But could I make them believe the truth about my relationship with Lucy or with Shirley? I decided that the best plan, at least at first... ...would be to see her and try to reason her out of her delusions.
10: So you met her?
17: Yes. We met at the Stones, just as she said. I didn't touch her. Even to shake hands. She repelled me. We sat side by side in the car
2: i always loved you, Stephen. You must have known that.
17: Certainly not.
2: Yeah. Even when you were so infatuated with Lucy, even then I loved you. Of course you knew.
17: I did not.
2: Why do you think I killed her?
17: You said she was too pretty. That's
2: what I said, but really I was jealous. Jealous of all the time you two spent together. I wanted it to stop. I wanted you for myself, that's why.
18: Good
10: God, Shirley!
2: Do you know what you're saying? Of course. It's the truth and now I've served my sentence, that means I'm free to love you. But
17: Shirley, you cannot- I wanna
2: marry you and have your children. And that's what's going to happen.
17: Shirley, listen to me. I'm married, we have a little boy, we're very happy.
2: Married? What does that matter? You can get a divorce. We can be together at last. I'll have your babies, and I'll look after your little boy. Everything
17: will be fine. Look after my child. The thought of even having her in the house appalled me. All I felt was the compulsion to get away, to buy time, so I lied. I said I'd talk to my wife, but she mustn't hope, because there was none. That seemed to satisfy her. She said goodbye, got out of the car, and walked away into the darkness.
10: Did you at any time enter the manor?
17: No. Did she ask you to? No.
10: Did you, while you were parked, see or hear anyone else?
17: No one. I drove away as soon as she left. I saw no one.
12: So that explained the unbolted door on the night of the murder.
10: Miss Bateman, you have the right to ask for a solicitor to be present if you think it necessary.
2: Why would I want the solicitor? I ain't done nothing wrong. I told you everything I know on Sunday.
10: Not everything. You didn't say then that you left the manor on Friday night. You met someone at about midnight and we know who it was. We've spoken to Mr. Collinsby.
2: You can't pin it on Stephen. He never killed that woman. He wouldn't kill anyone. He's good and he's kind. And I love him. I've always loved him. I never thought I'd see him again, but now he's back in my life. I want to be with him. I know I can make him happy.
10: But you threatened him. You said you knew someone who wanted to tell the world about when he was living with your family. What did you mean?
2: Nothing. I just said it. I thought it would make him meet me.
10: And it did, didn't it? You arranged for Mr. Collinsby to meet you at the parking space for the Stones, and he came. What happened?
2: Nothing happened. He said he was married, but he was going to ask his wife for a divorce. Then I went back to the house and he drove away.
10: Did he go back to the manor with you?
2: No, he didn't. Why would he? I knew my way, didn't I? Oh. I see what you're at. You're protecting all the others. And you're trying to pin the murder on Stephen and me. Well, it won't wash. One of those lot up the ass, they killed that woman. I don't know who it was. And I don't know why. But it wasn't Stephen. And it wasn't me.
10: Candace Westall came into the front room of the old police cottage in a jacket and scarf and wearing her gardening gloves. She took them off and placed them large and mud-caked on the table between us. The meaning was crude but plain. She had been called from a necessary job to answer unnecessary questions. In 2002, Rhoda Gradwin wrote an article dealing with plagiarism. In it... She attacked a young writer, Annabel Skelton, who subsequently took her own life. What was your relationship with Annabel Skelton?
8: Annabel Skelton was a dear friend. I would say I loved her, except that you'd misinterpret the remark. All friendships these days seem to be defined in terms of sexuality. She was my pupil at university, but her talent wasn't for classics. It was for writing. I encouraged her to complete her first novel and submit it for publication.
10: Did you know at the time that she'd simply copied parts of it from an earlier work by another writer?
8: I did not. Not until I read Gradwin's article. It must have surprised and distressed you. Yes, Inspector. Both those things.
10: Did you take any action? See, Rhoda Gradwin. Write to the magazine.
8: I saw Gradwin. We met briefly in her agent's office at her request. It was a mistake. She was, of course, totally unrepentant. I didn't know that, as we were speaking, Annabel was already dead. She hanged herself three days after the article appeared. The day after her death, I received a postcard. There were only eight words. I'm sorry. Please forgive me. I love you.
10: Did you hold Rhoda Gradwin responsible? She
8: was responsible. She murdered my friend, whether that was her intention or not. But I didn't take private revenge after five years. I didn't kill Rhoda Gradwin, but I can't feel even a minute's regret that she's dead.
4: Normally, the three days of the week when no patients were operated on and George Chandler Pole was in London gave Candace Westrell and Letty Frencham time to work on the accounts and sort out any domestic problems. But now, on Tuesday morning, the fourth day after the murder, he was still at the Manor, his London list postponed. Even so, there was always work to be done, and Letty and Candace were at their desks shortly after nine.
14: Chevrolet Manor. Yes, uh, just a
8: moment. It's for you a man, Jeremy something. Yes. Uh, look, we're busy in the office here and frankly, we haven't time to chase after Robin Boyson. What? Oh, all right, someone will go round to the guest cottage. We'll, we'll tell him to ring you. Goodbye. That's Robin's business partner, Jeremy Coxon. He needs Robin back urgently. He says he can't reach him. The mobile rings, but he only gets the answerphone phone message. If he didn't want to be disturbed, why not turn off the mobile altogether? I suppose someone had better take a look. When I left Stone Cottage this morning, his car was there and the curtains were drawn. He might be sleeping off a hangover. I'll go. I could do with a breath of fresh air. All right. I suppose I'd better come with you.
4: It was a drab and sunless morning, and they walked to Rose Cottage through a damp mist. The front door was unlocked, and they went through to the kitchen. The air was rancid with the smell of unwashed plates.
8: This looks more like yesterday's supper than today's breakfast. Let's look upstairs.
4: The front bedroom looked as though it had been ransacked. Clothes and underwear lay around on the bed and the floor.
8: This looks ominously like a hasty departure. It does. But taken with the state of the kitchen, I think all we can safely assume is that Robin is exceptionally untidy. Anyway, he isn't in the cottage. No, he isn't here. Do you think we'd better search
14: next door before doing anything else? All right. Let's go in the back
8: way. Robin? Robin? Well, it's certainly not in here. This was once the pantry, now we use it for storage. Chairs, cardboard boxes, the old freezer, that table. I'll have a look upstairs. You take the sitting room. Robin!
0: Although
4: very clean, the cottage struck Letty as almost deliberately cheerless and unwelcoming it was as if after their father's death candace and marcus had wanted to emphasize that for them stone cottage could never be a home anything no you nothing well i I suppose candace began to walk towards the garden door letty turning to follow her paused then without much thought she unlatched and lifted the lid of the freezer time stopped. She stared down at what lay beneath. Then the lid fell out of her hands and she slumped over the freezer, shaking uncontrollably. She gasped and tried to form words, but no sound came. And then Candace was pushing her aside, forcing the lid wide open. Robin Boyton was lying curled on his back, both legs raised stiffly in the air. His feet must have been pressed against the lid his knuckles were bruised. In his desperation, he had beaten his hands against the unyielding metal. The blue eyes wide and lifeless as a doll's, the lips drawn back, his dead face was a mask of terror. Oh. We must get the police.
8: Use my mobile, ring George at the manor. He'll be able to contact Commander Douglas here.
14: George, I'm phoning from Stone Cottage. Candice is here with me. This is absolutely appalling, but Robin Boyton's dead. We've just found his body in the disused freezer. I know. Could you get Commander Dalgleish as soon as possible? Better say nothing to anyone else until he's arrived.
10: How did you both come to be in Stone Cottage this morning?
8: We were looking for Robin. His business partner rang the office at about 9.40 to say that he hadn't been able to contact him since yesterday morning and was worried.
10: Which of you opened the freezer?
8: I did. I lifted the lid on impulse, almost without thinking. It never occurred to me that Robin might be dead. Neither of us mentioned the possibility.
10: Miss Westall, I'm afraid that for the present, and probably for some days, Stone Cottage will have to be closed. Until we know more, it's impossible to say whether Mr Boyton died as a result of an accident, whether he committed suicide, or whether he was murdered. There'll be a forensic pathologist and technical officers coming here, but care will be taken not
12: to cause damage.
8: You can pull the place apart for all I care. I've finished with it.
12: A.D., who was occupied at Stone Cottage, left the initial questioning to me and Benton. It was 3.30 before we arrived at the manor, and again we used the library for most of the interviews. Dr. Glenister's preliminary estimate was that Boyton had died the previous day sometime between 2 o'clock and 6. So I asked people where they were from 1 o'clock until dinner, which was served at 8. Nearly everyone could provide an alibi for part of the time, but none for the whole seven hours. So by late afternoon, Benton and I felt that little had been achieved. It was around 5 o'clock before we got round to seeing the Bostocks. We went down to the kitchen and they made tea for us. They chatted on and I let the talk flow.
4: It was nearly six o'clock when the breakthrough came. Poor man, said Kim. He must have climbed into the freezer and then the lid fell down on him. You know, he seemed sort of fascinated by that freezer. And it isn't even in his cottage. Do you remember, Dean, all those questions he asked when he was last here? How long it had been in Stone Cottage? Was it still working? Did Miss Westall use it? Funny him taking an interest, though did not even working. It broke in August.
12: Hello, sir.
10: Kate, I want you and Benton over here at the old police cottage. Candace Westall wants to make a statement.
8: Right, sir. Commander Douglas, I have an explanation for what could have happened, for why Robin got into that freezer. It doesn't reflect well on me, but I think you should know of it. To explain the background, I'll need to disclose some family affairs which aren't relevant to Rhoda Gradwin's murder. Go on. Some of this may already be known to you, if Robin spoke to you about his relationship with the family. He was, as he was fond of proclaiming, first cousin to Marcus and me. His mother, Sophie, was our father's only sister. Our family has always undervalued its daughters. Sophie didn't have a happy childhood and she left home as soon as she could. How old was she when she married Keith Boynton? Just 21, and she was pregnant. I only met him once. He had a certain superficial charm, but I found him repellent. Anyway, according to Robin, his mother died when he was seven, and about ten years later Keith found himself another woman and emigrated to Australia. No one has heard from him since.
10: When did Robin Boynton start making regular contact with you?
8: When Marcus took the job here with Chandler Pole and we moved farther into Stone Cottage. Robin started having brief holidays here in the guest cottage, obviously hoping he could kindle some cousinly interest in Marcus or myself. Frankly, it wasn't there. But I did have a slight conscience about him. From time to time, I'd help him out with small sums when he asked, claiming desperation. And then, about a month ago, he got an extraordinary idea into his head. My father's death followed my grandfather's by only 35 days. If it had been less than 28 days, there would have been a
12: difficulty about the will. Because you can't inherit if you die within 28 days of the testator. If my father hadn't inherited our grandfather's estate,
8: obviously there'd have been no fortune to pass down to us. And if he hadn't, Robin would probably have had a legitimate claim to an equal share of our grandfather's estate with Marcus and me. So. Robin obtained a copy of Grandfather's will and conceived the bizarre idea that our father had indeed died sometime before the 28 days were up and that Marcus and I had concealed his body in the freezer in Stone Cottage. (laughs) Then the idea was we'd thawed him out after a couple of weeks and called in old Dr. Stenhouse to write the death certificate.
10: When did he first put forward this idea to you?
8: A few weeks before Rhoda Gradwin's operation. He came down for a few days. As soon as he arrived, he gave me an old paperback, a thriller by Cyril Hare called Untimely Death. Actually, I'd read it many years ago. It was first published as He Should Have Died Hereafter. It's a detective story in which the time of death is falsified. I knew then what he was up to.
10: (laughs) But surely the idea was fantastic. Can he possibly have believed there was truth in it? Oh, he believed all right. And the idea wasn't as ridiculous
8: as it sounds. My father was an extremely difficult patient and was adamant that he wanted no visitors. I looked after him with the help of a retired nurse who is now living in Canada and an elderly maid who died just over a year ago. Robin probably assumed that we'd bribed the two helpers. There was, though, one fact he didn't know. On the night before he died my father asked to see our parish priest the reverend clement matheson he came at once driven by his sister marjorie neither of them will have forgotten the evening and happily both are still alive but i have a second witness i paid a short visit to toronto 10 days ago to see grace holmes the retired nurse who'd helped me during my father's last illness she'd been left nothing in his will And now that probate has been granted, I wanted to give her a lump sum to compensate for that last... terrible year. She gave me a letter, which I have passed to my solicitor, stating
12: that she was with my father on the day he died. But once you had this information, surely you told Robin Boyton about it as soon as possible? I
8: should have done. But I thought it would be amusing to keep quiet and let him dig himself into his hole even further. I think that Robin was working himself up to a final accusation, possibly a suggestion that I should hand over a specific sum in exchange for his silence. I believe that's why he stayed on here after Rhoda Gradwin's death. I don't know why he climbed into the freezer. It could have been to see how feasible it was for my father's body to be placed there.
12: Jeremy Coxon's house in Maida Vale was one of a row of pretty Edwardian villas with gardens leading down to the canal. The door was opened by a thin, tall man in his thirties. Expensively dressed with a careful casualness, he had the look of a male model prepared for a camera shoot. We showed our warrant cards. Mr Coxon? Oh, thank
13: God you've come. I've been frantic. Come in. They've told me nothing, absolutely nothing, except that Robin's been found dead. Of course, he'd rung me to tell me about Rhoda Gradwin's death. And now Robin. I have to know, was it suicide? Did he leave a note? Well, do sit down, both of you. There was no note.
12: Would you be surprised if it was suicide? God, yes.
13: Robin had his difficulties, but he wouldn't take that way out. I I only asked about a note because any alternative is even less
16: believable. He had no enemies. And there were no particular difficulties at present?
13: Nothing. Obviously, he was devastated by Rhoda's death. On top of losing a dear friend, he'd been hoping she'd offer some financial support for our business. But then he said that he had plans, that he was expecting money, big money. He wouldn't say where from, but he was excited, happier than I'd seen him for many years. Very different from when he came back from the manor three weeks ago. Then he seemed depressed. So why the secrecy? Isn't it time you
16: told me how he died? We don't know for certain, Mr. Coxon. His body was in a disused freezer in the cottage next to where he was staying. Was the lid open?
12: The lid was shut. We don't yet know how your friend came to be in there. It could have been an accident.
13: You mean you believe that Robin could have climbed into the freezer for some reason and then got trapped inside? It's a possibility, sir. It isn't. Let me tell you something about Robin. He was seriously claustrophobic. He never travelled by air or on the underground. He'd walk up 14 flights of stairs rather than get into a lift. I can't give you any proof, but you have to believe me about one thing. Robin would never have got into a freezer alive. This was no accident and it certainly wasn't suicide. Make no mistake, what you're investigating is murder.
12: Before Benton and I left Jeremy Coxon's house in Maida Vale, I asked to see Robin Boynton's room. It was an uninviting spectacle. The room smelled unpleasantly of the unwashed clothes that were piled high on the bed. A pedestal desk stood between the two windows and we made for that.
16: What a mess. We did the man hoard every piece of paper that came his way.
12: Take a look at this. What is it? Only a paperback.
16: Untimely death by Cyril Hare.
12: Isn't that the crime novel Precisely. It's... The body in the freezer. There's something else in there. One sheet of paper. Looks like a photocopy of a will. The paper, printed on both sides, was headed The Last Will and Testament of Peregrine Richard Westall. On the rear it was dated. Witness my hand this 7th day of July 2005. Attached to it was a receipt for £5 from Hoban Probate Office. The whole document was handwritten, a black, upright hand, strong in places but becoming more shaky in the last paragraph. The first paragraph appointed his son, Marcus, and his daughter Candace, together with his solicitors, as executors. The second said he wished to be cremated with no religious observances. The third bequeathed all his books to Winchester College and everything else in equal measure to his son and daughter. The will was signed and the signature was witnessed by Elizabeth Barnes, describing herself as a domestic servant and giving Stone Cottage as her address, and by Grace Holmes, a nurse of Rosemary Cottage, Stoke Chevrolet.
10: A fruitful trip, I'd say. Now... Coxon says that Robin Boyton was somewhat dejected after his visit to the manor on the 27th of November. Mm. I wonder why?
16: Well, Coxon told us that the day Rhoda Gradwin was admitted for her operation, well, Boyton was excited and speaking about the prospect of big money.
15: Mm-hmm.
10: And it's about then that he sends his text message to Miss Gradwin, imploring her to see him, saying that the matter is urgent. Yeah. So what happened between his first and second visits to change the whole situation.
12: I know. He went to Holborn Probate Office and obtained a copy of Peregrine Westall's will.
10: Precisely. The will.
12: But how could that result in a big financial gain for Boyton?
10: Well, suppose that when Candice Westall demolished his allegation about freezing the body, she somehow made him suspect that she wanted no further discussion about her father's will, Perhaps she offered him money if he shut up and went away. And that aroused his suspicions. You're thinking of forgery? It's a possibility. Hmm. It's time to take a look at that will. Which of you, um... I've got it. (laughs) Ah, nicely dated, I see. Hmm. Anything about the date strike
12: either of you? Yes, we both spotted it. The 7th of July, 2005, the day of the London bombing. Not a
10: very sensible date to choose if you were forging a document. Most people remember what they were doing on 7-7. So, let's assume that both the date and the will itself are in Professor Westall's handwriting. That leaves the signatures, his and those of
16: the two women. Neither of them is available. Candice Westall told us that the old housemate is dead. And the nurse, Grace Holmes, is now living in Canada. Mm -hmm.
12: So, suspecting that Boynton is now focusing his attention on the will, Candace flies off to Toronto ostensibly to give Miss Holmes a contribution from Professor Westall's bequest. Something
16: that could easily have been arranged by a letter, telephone or email. Mm. So why was it so important to see Grace Holmes in person? I reckon
12: Professor Westall was in the habit of changing his will. He may have written this one, leaving everything to his son and daughter, but what if he never got round to signing it? Do we know what the previous will stipulated?
10: We do. I phoned Professor Westall's solicitors today while you were away. The whole estate was divided into two equal parts. Robin Boyton was to receive half of the estate in recognition that his parents and he had been unfairly treated by the family. The remaining half was to be divided equally between Marcus and Candace.
12: Did Boyton know that?
10: I very much doubt it. I hope to learn more on Friday. I've made an appointment with Philip Kershaw, the lawyer who dealt with that will, and also the most recent one. He's a sick man and lives in a retirement home outside Bournemouth, but he's agreed to see me. At last we're getting somewhere. But without one piece of hard physical evidence, either about the possible forgery of those names or the deaths of Rhoda Gradwin and Robin Boynton. And to complicate matters, we have a convicted murderer in the manor. Suddenly, an idea came into my head. It was late, but Jeremy Coxon was a night owl his mobile might still be on. He was in the pub, and when he gathered who was calling, he asked me to hold on for a moment while he went outside.
13: Is there any news?
10: None at present, I'm afraid. I'm sorry to call so late, but this is important to the investigation. Do you remember what you were doing on 7-7?
13: You mean the day of the London bombings?
10: Yes. 7th of July 2005.
13: Well, of course. Who doesn't?
10: What about Robin Boyton? Did he tell you what he was up to?
13: Well, he happened to be in central London, quite close to one of the incidents. (laughs) Bored me rigid for days about his narrow escape. (laughs) He turned up that night at my Hampstead flat. Oh, it must have been just before 11 kept me up for hours telling me about his day of coincidences.
10: Coincidences? Why? What happened to him?
13: Well, first of all, he just missed being in the bus that was blown up. He'd been in Tottenham Court Road and was very close to the explosion. Really? And then he was clutched by some old biddy who was pretty shocked. He had to spend some time quietening her down. In the course of all this, she told him that she lived at Stoke Chevrolet, of all places, but was staying with a friend in London.
10: Did he tell you her name? not. Did he tell you anything else about her?
13: Well, I'm pretty sure he said that she was helping his cousins look after some old relative that they've been landed with. Uh, sorry, I can't be more helpful.
10: If the woman who Boynton met was Elizabeth Barnes, there was no way she could have signed the will on the 7th of July 2005. But had it been Elizabeth Barnes, how could we prove that one way or another? I went to bed, but not to sleep. It was after three when I accepted at last that I had no hope of sleep. Perhaps a brisk walk down the lane would tie me sufficiently to make it worth going back to bed. I strode out under a sky freckled with high stars, hearing nothing but my own footsteps. Then, approaching the manor, I saw distant tongues of flame. Who would be making a bonfire at three in the morning? Something was burning in the circle of stones. Taking my mobile from my pocket, I called Kate as I raced,
4: heart-pounding towards the fire. The burning of Mary Kite back in 1654 had been at three o'clock in the afternoon of the 20th of December. But the afternoon wasn't possible for this final ceremony of identification, which would silence Mary Kite's troubled voice forever and give her peace. Three o'clock in the morning would have to do. Mary Kite would understand. What was important was to pay this final tribute to reenact as closely as she dared those appalling final minutes. When her watch showed 2.40, she was ready to leave. She put on her darkest coat, a large box of matches already in the pocket, and left the manor carrying two bags of kindling with a curled washing line slung over her shoulder. It was a cold night, the stars high, the wind rising. She moved like a ghost down the lime walk. Soon the moon blanched stones were fully in sight. She made her way to the ditch and soon found the paraffin can she'd put there earlier. And now she began to construct a circle of wood inside the stones. Bending and working methodically, she at last completed it to her satisfaction. Then, unscrewing the cap and holding the paraffin can with great care, she bent double and made her way around the circle of kindling, anointing each stick. Next, taking the washing line, she bound herself to the central stone. Taking the matches from her pocket, she stood rigid for a moment, her eyes closed.
2: Mary Kite, this is for you. This is to tell you that I know you were innocent. They're taking me away from you. This is the last time I can visit you. I do this in your memory.
4: She struck a match and threw it towards the circle of wood. But the wind blew out the flame almost as soon as it had been lit. She tried again, and then again with shaking hands. She was close to sobbing. It wasn't going to work. She stared up the avenue. The great trunks of the limes grew and closed in together. Their top branches merged and tangled, fracturing the moon. And now...
15: Beal. Burn in hell, Mary! In hell, so Beal! Witch! Witch!
4: And now they were at the wall, jostling against it, gasping mouths like a row of death heads, screaming hatred. Suddenly the shouting stopped. A figure detached itself, came over the wall, and moved up to her.
8: I knew you'd come. I knew you wouldn't fail, Mary. But it won't work, the way you're doing it. I'll help. You see, I'm the Executioner.
4: The Executioner selected a slender piece of wood, brought it over, and shielding it from the wind, lit it and held it high. Then, moving over to the stone circle, she thrust it amongst the kindling. Immediately there was a rush of flames, and the fire ran like a living creature, spluttering, crackling, and sending out sparks. The night came alive, and she experienced a moment of extraordinary triumph, as if the past, hers and Mary Kite's, were burning away. The executioner moved closer to her. Why, she wondered, were her hands so pinkly pale, so translucent? Why the surgical gloves? and then the hands took hold of the washing line and with one swift movement curled it round her neck there was a vicious tug as it tightened she felt a cold splash on her face something was being thrown over her body the reek of paraffin intensified its fumes choking her barely conscious she slumped against the rope and waited for death mary kite's death and then she heard what sounded like a sob followed by a great cry She saw an arc of fire and the hedge exploded into flame. And now she was alone. Half fainting, she began pulling at the cord round her neck. But there was no strength to lift her arms. She slumped against the bonds, her legs buckling, and knew nothing more. And then suddenly there were voices. A blaze of torches dazzled her eyes. Someone was vaulting over the stone wall, running to get her, leaping over the dying fire... There were arms around her.
10: You're all right. <laughs> You're safe. Sharon, can you understand me? You're safe.
4: Even before Douglas reached the Chevrolet Stones, he heard the sound of the departing car. But there was no point in making a desperate dash to follow. Rescuing Sharon from the flames had been the top priority. Kate?
12: I'm over here, sir. Uh, Mr. Chandler, Pole, and the rest are just carrying Sharon back to the manor with them. Good. Kate, look
7: after things here, will you? Benton and I are going after Miss Westall. I want to come with you. Is that you, Mr. Westall? I need to be there when you find her. I have to come. Yes, come with us. Now tell me, where is she likely to go? We have to know. She'll go to the sea. She loves the sea. She'll go where she likes to swim, Kimmeridge Bay.
10: But you can see she's not
7: here. Her car isn't here. We could try the other beach. She doesn't swim there. It's here she'd come. She is here. She's out there somewhere. By those rocks. She must be. Candace! Candace! No, she's not, Mr. Westall. Your sister's somewhere else.
10: Come away now. There's nothing you can do. Douglas? I see. Right, go ahead, I'll join you. The local police have found your sister's car. She isn't with it. What? Benton, Sir? you and I will join the search for her as soon as we've dropped Mr Westall off at the manor.
4: When they drew up at the front door of the manor, Westall allowed himself to be led in by Benton and handed over to the waiting Letty Frensham. He followed her like an obedient child into the library. After a while he said, Please leave me alone now. I'm all right, but I need to be alone. Just let me know when they find her. Letty placed a cushion on a stool. Lie back and put your feet up. I'll be back in an hour. Try to sleep. And then she was gone, but he had no intention of sleeping. He made his way quietly out through the great hall and to the back of the house and left by the side door. He felt neither the strength of the wind nor the cold as he passed through the formal garden to the stone chapel. As he approached through the dawning light, he saw that there was a dark shape on the stones outside the door. Something had been spilled, something which shouldn't be there. Confused, he knelt down and touched its stickiness. And then he could smell it, and raising his hands, saw that they were covered with blood.
7: Candice!
4: Candice! Candice! He beat against the door until his strength gave out and he sank slowly to his knees, his red palms pressed against the unyielding wood. And it was there, still kneeling in her blood, that the searchers found him twenty minutes later. Benton
12: threw himself against the chapel door until it burst open against the body. As Adie and I went in, she was lying curled like a sleeping child, the knife beside her bright hand. There was only one cut in her wrist, but it was deep. Something was grasped in her left hand.
10: What's that she's holding? Benton, would you... uh,
16: I'll try, sir. There. It's a memory stick, sir. There's something she wants to tell us.
12: The memory stick contained nothing but one audio file. Now AD played it on his laptop and we listened as a team.
8: I'm speaking to Commander Adam Dalgleish, and what I'm saying is the truth. I've known for over 24 hours that you were going to arrest me. My plan to burn Sharon at the Witch's Stone was my last desperate attempt to save myself from a trial and life sentence. If I'd succeeded, I'd have been safe, even if you had suspected the truth. Her death would have looked like the suicide of a neurotic murderer. A suicide I hadn't arrived in time to prevent. Oh yes, I knew all about Sharon. There was another reason why she had to die. She saw me as I was leaving the manor after I'd killed Rhoda Gradwin. Now Sharon, who always had a secret to keep, knew someone else's secret. She told me what she planned to do at the Stones, her final tribute to Mary Kite before she was forced to leave the manor, And why wouldn't she tell me? We'd both killed. We were bound together by that terrible crime. But then, in the end, after I'd wound the rope round her neck and poured paraffin over her, I couldn't strike the match. I realised in that moment what I had become. There's little to tell you about the death of Rhoda Gradwin. I killed her to avenge the death of a dear friend. Annabel Skelton But did I go to her room that night to kill her? I had, after all, done all in my power to dissuade Chandler Pole from admitting her to the manor Afterwards, I thought perhaps I meant only to terrify her to tell her the truth about herself, to let her know that she destroyed a young life and a great talent But on the other hand Why did I wear those latex gloves, which I afterwards cut up in the bathroom of one of the empty suites? No. When I lifted my hand from her neck, I felt a sort of... liberation. As if I'd washed away all the frustration of the past years.
16: I'll just hold it there for a second. Do we believe her? Not me. Not about the Gradwin murder. It doesn't sound credible.
12: I agree. Not sufficient motive. There's more to it. Mm. She's telling us the truth, but not the whole truth.
10: Let's push on. As for
8: Robin Boyton, he devised this extraordinary idea that we'd conceal the time of my father's death by freezing his body. I doubt this was his idea. This, too, came from Rhoda Gradwin, and they planned to pursue it together... The plan was, of course, ridiculous. I didn't tell my brother what Gradwin and Robin were planning, and after I'd killed her, I decided to play along until Robin was thoroughly implicated. Then I'd have sufficient evidence to charge him with blackmail. I asked him to meet me in the old pantry. I asked him what he had in mind, and he said he had a moral right to a third of the estate. I pointed out that he could hardly reveal that I'd falsified the date of death without himself being accused of blackmail. I offered one quarter of the estate with 5,000 as a start. Because I needed his fingerprints on the lid of the freezer, I said that the cash was inside it. He might have had doubts, but he had to look. When he lifted the lid, I suddenly grasped him by the legs and toppled him in. Then I closed the lid and fastened the clasp. I can't feel sorry for either of my victims I doubt whether either of them will be mourned or missed and that's all I have to say except to make it plain that at all times I worked entirely alone I told no one, consulted no one, asked for no one's help I shall die with no regrets
12: and with no fear
0: that's it
10: Trouble is, I find difficulty in believing it.
12: What in particular, sir?
10: Boyton's death, for one. There's something odd about her account.
12: You mean all that detail. Much more than when she tells us about Rhoda Gradwin. Do you think she's trying to divert our attention from something far more damaging than that story of freezing her father's corpse?
10: You've got it, Kate. I think she is. And what she's trying to conceal are those Ford signatures on her father's will. She's so determined to do so that she dies with her explanation clapped in her hand. I think we're done here. You should both be able to get away by tomorrow afternoon. Officially, at least, the investigation's over. Though I do have this appointment tomorrow with the Westall solicitor, Philip Kershaw.
12: By midday on Friday, Benton and I had made our farewells. A.D. had already said his formal goodbyes to Mr Chandler-Pole and the small group at the manor and had driven off to Bournemouth to interview Philip Kershaw. He planned to return to the old police cottage to collect his baggage on his way back to London. Now, as Benton drove us out of the manor gates, I asked him to stop off at the cottage and wait in the car so that I could check that the Dorset police had removed all their equipment. A.D.'s grip was downstairs, ready-packed, and I knew his murder bag would be with him in the car. The only equipment remaining to be moved was his laptop, still plugged in so he could check for any last messages. On impulse, I typed in my own password. A single email came up on the screen. Dearest Kate, an email's not the best way to say something important, but I have to be sure this reaches you. I've been living like a monk for the last six months to prove something to myself, and now I know that you were right. Life's too short to waste on people we don't care for, and much too precious to give up on love. There's one thing I want you to know: the girl you saw me with was the first and last since we became lovers. You know I'd never lie to you. The beds in a monastery are very hard and lonely, and the food is terrible. My love, Piers. I tapped in my reply. Your message received and understood. The case here is finished, and I'll be back in whopping by seven. Why not say goodbye to the abbot and come home? Kate.
10: Huntington Lodge, standing on a high cliff some three miles west of Bournemouth, was approached by a short drive which curved between cedar trees and rhododendron bushes to an impressively pillared front door. There was no need to knock at Mr. Kershaw's room, It was already open, with Philip Kershaw awaiting me. Mr. Kershaw, I believe you acted for the Westall family in the matter of both the grandfather's and the father's wills.
11: Not I, Commander. The family firm. I retired and took up residence here eleven months ago. The work is done by my younger brother in the office in Poole. He did, however, keep me informed. So you weren't present when this will of Peregrine Westalls was drawn up or signed? No member of the firm was. Neither the original nor a copy was sent to us at the time it was made. No one knew of its existence until three days after Peregrine Westall died. And then? Candace found it. In a locked drawer in the bedroom. Uh, well, as you may know, Peregrine Westall was rather in the habit of drawing up wills. And when you saw the will, you had no doubts about its validity? None. And I have none now. Why should I? No one familiar with Peregrine Westall's hand could possibly doubt that he wrote this will. What about the will which preceded this? Uh, that was made in the month before Peregrine Westall left his nursing home and moved to Stone Cottage uh, with Candace and Marcus. Oh, you may as well have a sight of it. Uh, that, too, was handwritten. It'll give you the opportunity to compare the writing. Uh, here, as you see, uh, Peregrine Westall revokes the previous will and leaves half the estate to his nephew Robin Boyton and the remaining half to be divided equally between Marcus and Candace. If you compare the handwriting on the two wills, you'll see they're the same. Are you completely satisfied that Candace Westall murdered both Robin Boyton and Rhoda Gradwin and attempted to murder Sharon Bateman? Yes, to the first part of your question.
10: I don't believe the whole of Miss Westall's confession, but it's true as regards Miss Gradwin and Mr Boynton, and she confessed to planning the murder of Sharon Bateman. I see. I think that by then she must have made up her mind to kill herself. Once she suspected that I knew the truth about the last will, she couldn't risk a cross-examination in court.
11: The truth about the last will? But do you know the truth? I believe that all three signatures were forged. You have your confession, you have your murderess, the case is closed. The money was bequeathed to the two people who had the best right to it. But I don't like unfinished business. I needed to know if I was right about those forged
10: signatures and if possible to understand why Candace Westall did it. Now
11: I think I do. Or is that too arrogant a claim? Yes, Commander, I think it is. Arrogant and perhaps even impertinent. Why do you say that? Tell me, are there any circumstances in which you would break the law in order to benefit someone important to you, or perhaps to right a wrong?
10: Forgive me if you find this impertinent, but would the important person to you be Candace Westall?
11: I'm going to tell you something that I've never told another human being, and never shall. I do it because I believe that, with you, it will be safe. As you wish. Basically, it's a commonplace story. It happens everywhere. Twenty-five years ago, when I was thirty-eight and Candace was eighteen, she had my child. Your child? I first met Candace when I became a partner in the firm and took over Peregrine Westall's affairs. I visited the family house often enough to see how he dominated and bullied his family, Candice in particular. How did your relationship begin? Oh, we met by pure chance in a bookshop in Oxford. I invited her to have coffee with me. Without her father, she seemed to come alive. She talked and I listened. We enjoyed each other's company and we agreed to meet again. Soon I took to driving to Oxford and taking her for lunch outside the city. And it turned into a love affair. We had sex only once. I think afterwards we both knew it was a mistake, but but, but we understood why it had happened. I was kind, fond of her, available, and I was the ideal partner for a first sexual experience. Which she both wanted and feared. She could feel safe with me. And from that one encounter. (laughs) Yes. Oh, we were unlucky, I suppose. How did you handle it? Well, Candice managed to conceal the pregnancy until the start of the long summer vacation. And before the truth could be discovered, she went abroad. Two months later, she came back, secretly, and had the baby in a London nursing home. It wasn't difficult for me to arrange private fostering, followed by adoption. So you were rid of the baby and no one the wiser? In a sense... Admittedly, Candace didn't see Annabelle again, and even the name was chosen by the prospective foster parents, until the girl was eighteen. Annabelle? Annabelle Skelton? Candace must have kept in touch, however indirectly, without ever acknowledging that the child was hers. And how about you? Did you see Candace again? Yes, only once. For the first and last time after twenty-five years. On Friday the 7th of December, she came back from visiting the old nurse Grace Holmes in Canada, the surviving witness to Peregrine's will. She went out to pay her a sum of money for the help she gave in nursing Peregrine Westall. Uh, I think she said £10,000. Candice was also anxious to have the nurse's evidence about the date of her father's death. She had told me about Robin Boynton's ludicrous allegation. That the body had been concealed in a freezer until twenty-eight days after her grandfather's death. Well, now, now here, yes, here it is. This is the letter that Grace Holmes wrote and gave her.
0: Dear sir, Miss Candace Westall has asked me to write confirming the date of the death of her father, Professor Peregrine Westall. This occurred on the fifth of March, two thousand and seven. Two days earlier. On the 3rd, after it had been getting much worse, Dr. Stenhouse had visited, and on the same day, Professor Westall said he wanted to see the local clergyman. Reverend Matheson came at once, driven by his sister. Professor Westall died two days later, and I was in the house with his son and Miss Westall when he passed away. I was the one who laid him out. I also witnessed his last will, which was written out in his own hand. This was sometime in the summer of 2005, but I don't remember the date.
10: She was asked to confirm the date of his death. So why, I wonder, the paragraph referring to the will?
11: Perhaps she thought it important to mention anything concerned with Peregrine's death.
10: But the will was never questioned, was it?
11: In any case, why should Candace Westall feel it necessary to fly to Toronto and see Grace Holmes in person? You're suggesting that the £10,000 was a payment for this letter for the last paragraph in the letter. I think Grace Holmes had seen
10: what Candace had endured at her father's hands, and I think she'd be happy to see justice done in the end to Candace and Marcus. Mr. Kershaw, if I asked you whether Candace Westall, on that last visit to you, discussed the truth
11: about her father's will, would you answer me? No, and I don't suppose you'd expect me to. That's why you won't ask. Hmm. But I can tell you this, Commander... Grace Holmes's letter was the least important part of the visit. Far more important was that Candace told me that our daughter had died. And she told me how. Yes, we had unfinished business. There were things both of us needed to say, and I think she died happier because she knew she could trust me. To be honest, that was all there had ever been between us. Not love, but trust.
10: One last question, Mr. Kershaw. When I telephoned a couple of days ago and you agreed to meet me, did you tell Candace Westall that I was coming?
11: I phoned and told her. Thank you. And now, if you'll excuse me, I I need to rest. I am glad you came, but we won't see each other again.
10: I drove westwards from Bournemouth, until, taking the coast road, I found a place where I could stop the car and look out to sea over Pool Harbour. In the past week, my mind and energies had been occupied only with the deaths of Rhoda Gradwin and Robin Boynton, but now there was my own future to face. Choices had been placed before me, most of them demanding or interesting, but until now I had given them little thought. Only one life-changing thing was certain. My marriage to Emma, and about that there was no doubt. Nothing but the certainty of joy. And at last I knew the truth about those two deaths. Perhaps Philip Kershaw had been right. There was an arrogance in wanting always to know the truth. Particularly the truth about human motives, the mysterious workings of another's mind. But it was time to get back to the old police cottage, to collect my bags and to be on my way. There was only one person now whom I longed to see. Arriving at the cottage, I opened the door. The fire had been relit, but the room was in darkness, except for the one lamp on a table by the fireside chair. Emma got up and came towards me, her face and dark hair burnished by the firelight.
4: Darling. What on earth? Kate phoned me before they left for London. I thought you might like company on the drive home.
1: In The Private Patient by P.D. James, Dalgleish was played by Richard Derrington. Kate Minskin by Deborah McAndrew. Benton by John Deep Moore, Marcus Westall by Adrian Grove. And Candice Westall by Alison Pettit. Sharon Bateman was played by Charlotte Worthing, Letty Frensham by Kate Layden, Collinsby by Andy Hockley, Jeremy Coxon by Mark Carey, Grace Holmes by Charlotte Westorham and Philip Kershaw by Robert Lister. The narrator was Carolyn Pickles. The Private Patient was dramatised by Neville Teller and directed in Birmingham by Peter Leslie Wilde. Now, just before the world tonight, let's take a look at tomorrow's weather forecast and scattered showers, some heavy, are expected to develop across Northern Ireland, Eastern England and Eastern Scotland during the day. Occasional mist or fog may affect western coasts, but it should be drier and brighter elsewhere and feel warm, especially in the southeast of England. However, cloud and occasional drizzle may reach parts of southwestern England later in the evening, and looking ahead to Sunday, heavy, possibly thundery rain is likely across southern parts, at first on Sunday, spreading northwards to affect many places during the day. On FM, on long Wave, on digital and online. This is BBC Radio 4.